Well, good morning. Last December, my girls and my wife were waiting expectantly for a uh, TV broadcast, a live version of The Sound of Music. They were pumped because Carrie Underwood was going to be, uh, be starring in it, and they were really excited. Any of you guys see the, the show? All right, a lot of you did. And uh, the show wasn't even over, and the internet exploded because all these people had all these opinions about the show, and they were expressing them on Facebook and Twitter and, and all of these things. They started putting all kinds of thoughts out there about how this thing was the worst show ever and all this, this kind of stuff. I'd encourage you as we dive into today's teaching to, to write this down. There's a little sheet you've got in your notes, and, and it says this. This is so true. We live in an unprecedented culture of commentary, don't we? We live in an unprecedented culture of commentary. And whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or a comment on YouTube, for a nation that prides itself on tolerance, you know, we, we sure have a lot of judgments that we throw out there, including our Americans love to judge how others judge others. Did you notice that? Um, here's, I offer you Exhibit A. I said many months ago we talk about this. Here comes Exhibit A. Here's Exhibit A. Do you know this guy? Phil Robertson for Duck Dynasty. Um, not long after the sound of music moved out of the crosshairs of the social commentary, this guy moved right into the center of the, uh, the crosshairs of attention. This guy's name is Phil Robertson. And in an interview with GQ magazine, Phil Robertson made some comments that were judged by many to be ignorant and offensive. And after getting an earful from those who were offended... The network that carried the show, A&E, they rendered their judgment on Phil Robertson. They said, you're suspended indefinitely. How long did indefinitely last? Not very. Because as soon as they rendered their judgment, people began judging their judgment on that. And within hours, a boycott A&E web, uh, uh, page went up on Facebook, and that page received a million likes within 24 hours. So this company, which listed among their core values as integrity, uh, they demonstrated they had a much higher value called profit, and they reversed their judgment, and then they reinstated Robertson, which then led people to do what? To judge that judgment. If ever there was a culture in need of the series that we're going to start today, it, it is ours. Today is part one of a four-part teaching series that we're going to call Sound Judgment. Sound Judgment. And I love this uh, slide that Mike put together for us. This is our, our slide for the series. And I love that there's that scale up there at the top. Because isn't that what we want? We want a measured response. Our, our, our culture is so quick just to react. I have an emotional response, so I need to get it out there. I need to, to put it down on my, my little device and, and send it out to the world. But what we want to press into over the next four weeks is what does a sound, measured, God-honoring response look like when you, form, when you begin to form an opinion, which we all do, and that's okay to form opinions. When you begin to form an opinion, what do you do with that? If we feel the need with that opinion to pass judgment on somebody or something, how do we do that well? That's what we want to look at. How do we do that well? 
Now, we're going to be looking, obviously, here as a church into what the scriptures say about this. And right now, I just want to spend a couple minutes just putting a whole bunch of scriptures out there. Over the course of this week, we'll pick a few of them. We'll dig deep into them. But I just want to see, show you why. If you ever run into different people who are professing Christians and they land all over the place on this, here's why. Here's why. Like, here's, here's two pa- passages I just want to put up next to each other. The first one is Matthew 7. The second one comes from Corinthians 6. And just look at, if you were just looking at one of these, think what a different conclusion you would come to if you only picked one of these and didn't uh, look at both of them. Matthew 7, 1 through 2 says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3 says this, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? Now, people tend to gravitate towards one or the other, just in general with their personalities. They tend to gravitate more of the quick to judge or slow to judge. But you look at the scriptures, you're like, which one is it? Should we avoid judging others altogether? Or are we called to judge the world? Or does sound judgment look different in different situations? Next week, we're going to dig deep into this Matthew 7. We want to dig into this principle about starting with yourself. It's such a key thing. All right, well, God willing, in two weeks, we're going to look at another biblical principle, and that is delegated authority. This is huge. Delegated authority as it relates to sound judgment. Here's an example of a scripture we may look at it's, um, when we get to that part. Uh, this comes from Second Chronicles 19, verses 5 to 10. King Jehoshaphat appointed judges in the land. He said to the judges, hey, consider what you do. For you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do. There's no injustice with the Lord, your God, our God, for partiality or taking bribes. Moreover, in Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat appointed certain Levites and priests, heads of the families of Israel, to give judgment for the Lord and to decide disputed cases. And he charged them. Thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord in faithfulness and with your whole heart. So there's delegated. Jehoshaphat's delegating authority that God has delegated to him. This related to this principle of delegated authority is then also another principle you see in the Bible of insider or outsider. Are you a part of this group that you're judging? Or are you judging from the outside? And this, this person or people you're judging, are they a part of your group or are you judging these, these people who are outsiders there? Here's some scriptures to speak to that. We'll press into these um, hopefully in a couple weeks here. Romans 14, 4, this one I have to remind myself all the time. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his or her own master that he or she stands or falls. Then 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those on the outside. Purge Purge the evil person from among you. All right, so there's a couple more scriptures to look at. Now, here's another thing that the Bible teaches But it's an interesting teaching. The Bible teaches that God is the ultimate judge. But even in this apparently straightforward doctrine, we find teaching that's as rich and nuanced as the very doctrine of the Trinity. Take a look at these two and try to tell me who does the judging. In Isaiah 33, 22, it says, For the Lord, speaking of the God, the creator of the universe, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. And... In John 5.22, we read, God the Father judges whom? No one. It's not a typo. 
but he has given all judgment to Jesus the Son. So you've got these paradoxes and you've got these, these, um, these nuanced teachings that you find in the scriptures. But they do point to God being the author of judgment. And so if we believe that all sound judgment is derived from God, his character, then sound judgment should reflect God's heart, his mind, his holiness, his love, his notion of justice. And that's reflected in passages like these. This is a passage out of Leviticus 19, verse 15, says this, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. There are dozens and dozens of passages in the Bible that speak to the issue of judging. In fact, I encourage you at some point during the series, just go online. There's a free tool, BibleGateway.com, and just type in, do a keyword search. Just put judge, judgment, and see all these different passages that pop up. Here's two that will pop up. I don't even know what to do with these. Um, we're not even going to touch on these, I'll tell you right now, in this series. Uh, we, we would spend a lot of time just trying to unpack these. 1 Corinthians 2.15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Yep. And John 9.39 says this, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who, may not, or those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So we're not even going to take on those at all, just to let you know. Um, but what I hope you can see from just, this is just a small, i just given you a small sampling um, from what the Bible teaches on judgment, and I hope you can see it is rich, it is layered, it is nuanced. And if you start cherry-picking passages, you take verses all out of context, you can use the Bible to proof text a theology that's not biblical. Let me say that one again, make sure I even got it right with my writing here. If you start cherry-picking passages, taking verses out of context, you can use the Bible to proof text a theology that's not biblical. But taken in their entirety, what you find in the Bible is a, the Bible calls for sound judgment, measured response, which is almost the polar opposite, again, of what we're so used to seeing and what our impulses say to do. We're so quick to react. I've got an opinion, and I'm going to leap to a conclusion, and often that conclusion is not a, here's what I think, it's a, here's what you should do. You know, and, and that's, you've crossed a line there. There's a big difference between I think and you should. And that's actually what we're going to focus on today. We're going to zero in on one principle today. And here it is, you can write it down. Here's the question behind the principle we're going to focus in on. How do you distinguish between opinion and ought? If you come away with nothing else today, here's the come away with this. There's a big difference between an opinion and an ought. And we're so quick to say, I, or you should, when really it's a I think. And if you can go through life with that understanding, that distinction, oh, we'll be so much better off, all of us. Now, for one of the reasons it's hard is Western cultures often blur the lines, don't they? We're so used to using should when we really should say I think. It just comes out real quick. You know, he shouldn't leave his dirty socks on the floor. Well, that might be a, you don't want him to leave the dirty socks on the floor, right? There might not be anything morally wrong with that. But it might be something that you would not like him to do. Or I hear people say, McDonald's should offer more healthy food. Well, should they? Or is that what you would like to see? And if you're looking for healthy food, you've got alternatives for that, right? Um, here's one. Here, here's, I, I shouldn't have said it that way. 
sure you can find lots of healthy food at McDonald's. I just, anyway. All right. Um, here's another one that I can get into trouble with. Well, no, I think I'll get a lot of agreement on this one. Radio stations, you know, radio stations and TV stations, they seem to put the commercials all at the same time for us channel flippers. They shouldn't do that. And that is a shouldn't. That is not a I think. That is just, that's just a shouldn't. That's just wrong. All right. So our culture does this, right? We confuse the I shoulds with the I think, I feel, I have an opinion on this. We, we just, boom, we say this is the way it should be. And churchgoers do this a lot too. Now, one of the things I'm just so blessed with with this congregation, and I'm not just saying this. This is, this is true. I, I've never been a part of a church family like this that is so good at, at discerning your, your ideas, your thoughts, your opinions from a, you shoulds. But we certainly see it happen in the church world where people confuse their preferences with shoulds. They confuse their preferences about music or messages or budgets or prayer or small groups or kids' ministry or youth ministry or cookies or coffee or buildings or decision-making. It's so easy to confuse those preferences with a here's what you should do. When it comes to the types of songs that a church chooses or the types of messages that a church delivers or the way you budget as a church or the programs you offer as a church, the way you make decisions as a church... The only way you can judge something is whether if you have a standard. That's why I'd encourage you to write this down. Um, You can't provide a measured response without a standard, right? You you can't. Then it's just your opinion. If your standard is, well, here's what I think, then what can someone else come back with? Here's what I think. It's one of the reasons that I feel statements. I I comment on this every once in a while. I feel is better than your I hate you kind of statements, but, but... I feel statements. You can just sit and go, I feel back and forth. Well, I feel you should pick up your socks. Well, I feel you should pick up my socks. Well, you can go back and forth on that all day. What's your standard? What's your, your standard that you're using to judge something? Well, certainly in the church world, we look first to the Bible, and we'll come back to that later. But, in, but beyond that, we look at things like, what is the specific vision that an organization has? You know, the way that we do things at this church is going to be different than youth with a mission. It's going to be different than... Interna- uh, was it the International House of Prayer? It's going to be different than other churches that have different visions, different, different purposes. Because they're trying to accomplish certain things. We're trying to accomplish certain things. So you're going to be making decisions based on that. So you're going to have different standards. And certainly that goes beyond the church world, doesn't it? You need a standard. If you're going to move from opinion to ought, you need a standard. So let's go back to uh, Sound of Music for a minute with uh, the, the Sound of Music TV broadcast and, and just how ridiculous Ridiculous, and I'm passing judgment here, but how ridiculous it was with some of those comments. Because they had their standard. Here's, here's, here's the criteria I'm using to judge it. Well, that's a different criteria than they were using when they put together the musical. Here's an example. Um, I'll put this on the screen. And I didn't just go cherry picking. I went, I Googled Sound of Music, Carrie Underwood, and I forget the word I used. I used like judgment or criticism or something like that. And here's the first one that came up. This was out of a, a time magazine uh, webpage, and look at, the, look, at the, um, look at the title there at the bottom. The title is, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Carrie Underwood? Nine Things That Went What? Wrong. Is wrong an opinion word? No. Wrong is an ought word. Wrong is a right and wrong. This is, this is you did this wrong. And then she says six things that went what? Right. Is that an opinion or an ought? That's an ought. I guess it's opinion and an ought. It's an, it's an ought. And then four people who should have played Maria instead. It should have. Is that just opinion or is that also ought? That's also ought. 
And one of her four was Morgan Freeman, which is really interesting. <laughs> On that, not making that up. Okay, so let's, let's take a look at this. Now, here's again where this gets so ridiculous, because this woman went on. She said, Carrie's hair was wrong. Her hair was wrong. Her dress was wrong. Her dress was wrong. She goes, yes, and what they should have done when they sang do re mi, they shouldn't have sung it inside, because in the movie, they went on a carriage ride. And in the movie, they went on a train ride. And in the movie, they were throwing tomatoes. This was a live TV production. And then it was interesting. So this excerpt now at the top, this excerpt comes from a correction she made. She had put out her original article, and then she put this in later when she got feedback from other people. Because she also commented, she said, the song order was all wrong. And people were like, yeah, the reason the song order was all wrong is because they followed the play, the original play version, which had a different order of the songs. And so then she writes this, and this is so revealing. I hear you all. The comparisons here are between the NBC version and the 1965 Julie Andrews movie. She goes, meaning that's the comparison I'm making, not the original stage version. I know there's some of the differences, especially the different song order, are consistent with the original show, but then what does she say? That's not the version that's what? Tattooed on my heart. Well, I'm sorry (laughs) for that, but they probably, as they're putting this together, going, oh, you know, I want to do a live version of The Sound of Music. I wonder what version is tattooed on Charlotte Alter's heart. That wasn't their point, right? So, again, she has a right to her opinion, but we have to be careful, especially as Christians. We, let's hold ourselves to a higher standard. If we're going to use a word like right, if we're going to use a word like wrong, if we're going to use a word like should, at least for us, let's do our best to say what is the standard that we're using. Because I could just write an article saying three things that you did wrong in your article. Number one, you didn't offer me a coupon to $100 off at REI. You didn't do that. So this is wrong. You know? Number two, number two, you didn't include a weather report for Shoreview. So it's wrong. Number three, there weren't pictures of Bigfoot. You're, you're just wrong. You know, I'm using a different standard, right? It's not fair for me to say this is wrong if my standard is not the standard that she was trying to do. So does it make sense? I just use this as an example. We do this all the time. We do this all the time with people. We, we say that person should do something in traffic differently. You know, I, I'm extremely guilty of this in politics. I, I blur them all the time, you know, because I have my opinions about economics and these types of things. And I'm so guilty to say that politician should, well... It's not always that simple. Now, if we're talking about a standard, if we're talking about the Constitution, now we have a should. If we have someone that's working outside the Constitution, if they're working outside the law, now we have something to judge. Does that make sense? I think this is a really important concept. You can't move from opinion to ought without a standard. Now, here's the thing about standards. At least this is something that that we believe as Christians. And I'd encourage you to write this down. Some oughts appear otherworldly. Some oughts seem to come not from a social contract. Some oughts seem to come not because we decided on that as people, but some oughts seem to come from a deeper place. There are some actions, there are some character traits that we just look at and we go, that's evil. It's just wrong. And it doesn't matter what the the law says. 
I mean, who doesn't pass judgment on Hitler's Germany and say, whatever the law was, that things you did were just wrong. And on the other side, there are some actions, there are some character traits that we look at and go, that is good. There's something about what you did that's just right. And it's not right because we say it's right. It's just right. It seems to be otherworldly. There's a notion of right and wrong that appears to, at least to me, transcend social contracts, a higher law that appears to be written on human hearts. And I want to go off on a related tangent for just a little bit. Some of you, you might start checking out on this. I just want to go down this just a little bit, and I understand if you're, if you're not interested in some of this. But this kind of stuff fascinates me because I'm a person who was a, was a critic of Christianity as I hit my teen years, like a lot of people um, move from your parents' faith. I've got to own it, so I became very critical of the Christian faith. I, I, I was public school all the way up. In college, I, I studied chemistry and biology and human anatomy and all these sciences. And so I was really fascinated with a lot of arguments about, about natural evolution of processes and, and development of even things like morality. But, but here's my thoughts on this, and I want to share some thoughts with some others. With, and I share this with all due respect. With all due respect, I'm one of many who believes that, that morality evolving through natural selection all by itself sounds a lot more compelling in the classroom than it actually plays out in real life. I put this quote in your notes. It's one that's worth a second, third look because it's really rich for, um, with its brevity here. And Reinhold Niebuhr says this, even as rigorous, a determinist as Karl Marx could subject social behavior to a withering scorn, which only the presupposition of moral responsibility could justify. In other words, even those who believe our notions of right and wrong are naturally derived, they don't live like that in real life. They, they have this deep conviction. All, all people do. This is just wrong. This is just right. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Love C.S. Lewis. He says, no one in real life pays attention to any moral judgment which can be shown to spring from non-moral, non-rational causes. The Freudian, the Marxist, they attack traditional morality precisely on this ground and with wide success. The naturalist, I love this sentence. The naturalist must not destroy all my reverence for conscience on Monday and expect me to, or expect to find me still venerating it on Tuesday. In our real, everyday life, we act as though some things are right, some things are wrong, not because of non-rational origins, not because of any human law or social contract, but because there seems to be a standard that runs deeper than any of that. I'm reading a book right now. One of the reasons I'm, this is on the forefront of my mind, I'm reading a book in preparation for a, a teaching that's down the road here. It's a book called Miracles by C.S. Lewis. Uh, any of you read, read this? In the first hour, there were a number who had read this. Fascinating book. Um, and he makes a, a number of, of really interesting cases about, about, about reason and logic and morality and, and how this appears consistent with some sort of deeper truth. And as a former skeptic ex- himself, he pushes back at this notion that if God does exist, why does God not make himself more obvious? 
If there is a source behind morality, why doesn't he just make himself more known? And C.S. Lewis says he does. Here's a, here's a really interesting, a, diff- a paradigm shift from a, lot, uh, from a lot of conventional thinking. Let me just grab a sip here and we'll take a look at it. All right, he says this. When you're looking at a garden from a room upstairs, it's obvious once you think about it that you're looking through a window. But if it is the garden that interests you, you may look at it for a long time without even thinking of the window. There is thus a tendency in the study of nature to make us forget the most obvious fact of all. And since the 16th century, when science was born, the minds of men have been increasingly turned outward to know nature and to master her. It is therefore not in the least astonishing that they should have forgotten the evidence for the supernatural. In particular, the evidence that reason exists, the evidence that morality exists. The deeply ingrained habit of truncated thought, which we call scientific habit of mind, was indeed certain to lead to naturalism, meaning there's no God. Everything that we know, including reason and morality, it just evolved over time. He goes, this is just going to lead to naturalism unless this test tendency were continually corrected from some other source. But no other source was at hand. For during that same period, of, of sci- uh, same period, men of science were coming to be metaphysically and theologically uneducated. Now that is an interesting twist to I think, therefore I am. He just kind of twisted and says, I ought, therefore God is. Just fascinating thinking. And again, we didn't have time to really go down this trail, but I want to recommend that book um, if, you, uh, if you are interested in exploring that on a deeper level. All right, but let's get back on point. And here's the point. If God's thoughts can be known, how can I know them? If there is a deeper morality that God wants to present to us, if there are some rights and some wrongs, some of which are more intuitive, but others might not be. If these exist, how do we know them? And not only how do we know them, but then how do we rightly express them to others? What wisdom does God give us if we have something that's beyond an opinion and we want to share that? What wisdom can we get from God about how to do that and do that well? Well, if you're playing fill in the blank, I bet you got this one right because there's no surprises here. Next blank on the talk sheet, Christians look to the Bible as our standard for faith and conduct. Christians look to the Bible as our standard for faith and conduct. For instance, our government. Our government says many forms of pornography are legal. The scriptures would teach us that doesn't matter what the government says on that one. It's not okay for my people. Gossip. Gossip is not only widely accepted, it is a money maker. I don't know if a lot of social networking could even happen were it not for gossip, right? It doesn't matter if it's the scriptures would say, it doesn't matter if that one's, we have a social contract that says it's okay. Scriptures would tell believers it's not okay. Being quick to judge others <laughs> is widely accepted. The Bible calls for a measured response. And whether it's our standard for right and wrong or the standards we use to discern when and how to speak into the lives of others, Christians are to look to the Bible as our standard for faith and conduct. And I want to open to a real familiar passage to many of us. I do like to open the Bible today. Um, we're just going to look at this uh, one passage here as we start to bring this to a close. It's from 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go 2 Timothy 3.16. I also want to let you know, too, 
that we keep a stack of Bibles um, at both of those tables on the, at either entrance, and that's for you. If you don't have a Bible at home, we would love to send you home with one free today. You don't have to tell us. You don't have to sign anything. Just uh, pick one up. It was interesting. I was, um, I was, uh, we were helping to clean out our girls' rooms. Oh my word! Um, uh, this this yesterday, and and uh, and I noticed that they each had one of these Bibles. They must have heard what I said, <laughs> and uh, and they took one home. And the thought occurs to me, because um, my, my first thought is, oh come on, what are you doing? Because let's save that for somebody else. No. If your kids want to bring home a Bible, encourage that. And we will get more. But if your kids ask for a Bible, do you, you will need to tell the young ones, though. There's some passages we're just going to not read till you're older because there's some stuff in the Bible that, oh, I just closed mine. Um, we were going to read it, right? Uh, there's some stuff. Anyway, okay, I got off time. But back on point. Here we go. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says this. All Scripture. Here's what we believe as Christians. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful. It's useful for teaching. It's useful for what? Rebuking. If you are going to speak into someone's life, Scripture is useful for that. It's useful for correcting. And not just correcting others. Next week, we're going to, we're going to spend the entire week, next week on this principle of you start with yourself. And so the, the Scriptures are helpful for that, too. When do you extend grace to yourself? When do you start with your own stuff? You know, the, you start with yourself. So that correcting isn't just outward. And it's, it's help, useful for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that's what we're going to look into. And one of the things we're going to find, here's the last blank to fill in on your talk sheets. We're going to find this, that the Bible itself, when you get into it, what it calls for is a measured response. We get into so much trouble as Christians when we don't have a measured response. When we just take a little piece out of the Bible, out of context, oh, the Bible says don't judge. I'll never say anything to anybody. No, that's not right. Or the Bible says rebuke and call people to repentance, so I'm just going to run around doing that because that's my job. No, it's not that. I won't even want to say simple. It's, it's not that. So what we're going to try to do as best we can in the time we have left over the course of the series to look at some key principles in this area. But as we do close today, what, what I want to draw your attention to here is, is our altar. And there's uh, two objects up there that I want to try to remember to bring each week that I want us to put up on the altar. And that is we've got Lady Justice up there. And I hope we have time, one of these upcoming uh, messages, to, to dig into some of the symbolism and how it is and isn't like Christianity. And I also have one of the judges' gavels up there. And the reason I want to put them up on the altar for the series is that's what we want to call us to as Christians whether it's this area or any area, are we bringing everything up to the altar and say, God, I bring it before you. Would you help me in this? I, would, you, would you fill me with your ideas of right and wrong? Would you fill me with your heart so that I can do this well? That I won't be a person who is speaking harsh words when a soft word is needed. That I'm not going to be a person that withholds truth when I should be speaking it into somebody's life. You know, to, to say, God, would you help me with everything surrounding this? Would you help me, Lord, so that I'm not misrepresenting you? So w- as we close today, what I'd like us to do, we're going to have just a, um, a couple minutes where we're just going to play some music, an instrumental. And what I want to do during this time is for me just to shut my mouth. Do I hear an amen? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> thank you for not saying one at that point. Um, but 
what I want to do is to just for me to shut my mouth and just give you just a minute or two for the Holy Spirit to try to speak to you. And there's nothing weird about that. It's just you opening up your heart and mind. Maybe you've never done this before and just eliminating distractions, perhaps by closing your eyes um, and just saying, God, okay, when it comes to judgment, speak to me on that, God. Am I judging people too quickly? Am I a harsh person? Am I confusing my I thinks with you shoulds? That took me all two seconds before. (laughs) Oh, you better apologize. (laughs) Yeah, so spend some time on that. Maybe some of you have been on the receiving end of some harsh judgment. And maybe this is an opportunity for you to say, God, this is painful. I grew up in a house where, boom. Or I grew up in a church that, boom. This could be an opportunity to you just to hear God. So let's take a minute or two, let the Holy Spirit speak, and then I'll, I'll come up and I'll, I'll close us. So let's do that. Let me, let me just pray as we seal this time. Father, I, we come to you, not me. We come to you right now. And you say that we can ask you for things. So we're going to ask you for something good, and that's going to ask for your Holy Spirit to speak to us now. So we gather in your name. You said two or three and gather in your name. You're here. You're here. We ask, Father, that you give us ears to hear, hearts to receive. In this time, in Jesus' name, amen. You're giving that a couple minutes. Some closing thoughts. One closing thought is this, and this is the big one. This is a better way to live. You know, as you go through life, and if you go through life with the 
finding criticisms everywhere, it's really going to be easy to do that. Everywhere you go, anything you do, you will always find something that you think should have been done differently. That's easy. You don't have the gift of criticism. It, it, it's part of the fall, all right? We, we, we just comes, all right? Um, but that idea of trying to find the blessing in everything, to find the silver lining in everything, to see things half full, that takes more work. But isn't that a better way to live? It is. And when you're around those people, aren't those the people you want to be around? So it's a better way to live, not only because you yourself have more of this inner peace of, you know what? It isn't their thing. It's my thing. There's also this relationship change that's going to happen in your life, too. As you become a person who is slow to judge. And you become a person that people can feel safe around because they can just share and be honest and open. And they know that you'll listen first. And to be a person who loves and cares enough to be able to speak in to their life after you've earned permission to do so. You know, to do this well, to be measured in your response. You know what? This is something I shouldn't withhold. This is something I should. It is a better way to live. So I'd encourage you to pursue it. I encourage you to to dig into these scriptures that we're going to look at here over time. I also want to encourage you, too, if you have some unfinished business today, you might want to join folks over at the prayer area. We'll have people that would love to pray with you about this or anything. If you are feeling like, you know what? I had some really specific things come into my mind, and I would like to get together with somebody else to say, would you pray with me about this? Would you pray for resolve, or would you pray that I would do this, or whatever? They would love to pray with you about this or anything. You know, we we have all kinds of stuff going on in your lives, and people would love to join with you and pray with you about that. But as we close today, let's, uh, let's all pray together. Would you please stand? Let me pray um, for us as we go our separate ways today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love an, us enough to judge us measuredly. Thank you, Lord, that, that when it was wrath that we as humanity were deserving of, you instead sent your son to show us a different way, to teach us a different way, and then to give up his own life to make this new way possible. So, Lord, would you, would you help us this week? And specifically, I want to pray that you'd help us with this should and, and think or, or the, the, the opinions and oughts. Would you help us to be consciously aware of that? Holy Spirit, would you work on us in that and, and help us to, before a word comes out of our mouth that's right, wrong, should, shouldn't, Lord, would you help us to be more reflective on that? Lord, thank you that you do go forth with us as we go forth, and we go forth with that peace of knowing that that everywhere we go, you already are. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great, great week.